Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and uh, welcome in. Welcome in for another episode of In The Shift. So good to have you with me. Uh, I hope you're doing okay. Um, well, even. I even hope you're doing well. Uh, and I want to say a couple of things just before we get into our content for today. Uh, a reminder to you, if you listened to the last episode, you'll know that In The Shift is now on Patreon. Uh, and if you don't know what Patreon is, it's basically an online space where you can support the work of this project financially, which uh, will help all of this to keep going. So that'd be cool if it's something you're into. Um, and my hope also, I think, is that it can become another aspect of the In The Shift community, you know, a, a, an opportunity for some more engagement if you want it. No no pressure, you can just jump on there and support the work. Uh, but if you'd like to help give feedback and shape where this whole thing is going, or if you'd like access to more resources and, and more conversation, then Patreon is the space where over time we're going to evolve that into into the kind of thing where that, that stuff can happen. So um, you can get there by going to patreon.com slash in the shift. You can find out more information there. You can watch a lovely little video of me uh, talking about it. So, you know, if you're just, if you've been listening along and thinking, I'd love to see your face uh, so I can picture it when I listen. Um, then uh, That sounds a bit creepy. But anyway, uh, that's what you can do. You can go to patreon.com and you'll see a little video of me there talking about uh, this in a bit more detail. Um, it's it's kind of cool, you know. It's uh, When I started this podcast, uh, I had absolutely no idea how it was going to go. I didn't know whether people would be interested, would tune in, and, and I thought it was there's a kind of an amusing nature to it in that, you know, as someone who I think, I, I feel like these conversations uh, could be helpful to people, people seem to be finding them helpful, which is really encouraging. Um, but someone with my personality doing something like this is quite funny because I sort of, I had this visceral reaction to ever telling anyone or promoting myself in any kind of way. So I kind of want people to listen to it if it'll find, if it will be good for them but I don't want to have to tell anybody that I'm doing it um, because I don't like the vibe, right, of, self, of self-promoting. of self Anyway, uh, I'm learning to come to terms with it and I've talked about it a few times uh, throughout the podcast. Um, and so, look, maybe it's just part of my quaint, quirky personality uh, and anyway, you can be rest assured this is not going to turn into some kind of massive personal uh, branding mission um, because I would just be so deeply uncomfortable with that. But what I do want to do is look at ways to try and make the project itself sustainable and also create more spaces for engagement and community. So that's what I'm trying to do with Patreon. Uh, if it sounds like your kind of thing, then head to patreon.com slash in the shift. All right. I've got through that, haven't I? Yep, without any awkwardness at all. Um, that's good. That's what the people tell me to do. They say, just talk about it and don't don't worry about being awkward about it. And uh, And I always manage to find a way to make it just a little bit awkward. Anyway, uh, I doubt I'll be getting signed up for a sales team anytime soon. Right, let's move into gear. In the last episode, I talked about why we should be, uh, if you've been listening along, then you'll know in the last couple of episodes in particular, we've been talking about LGBTQI pe- people and the relationship with uh, the Christian church and the way in which the church has been um, held these really harmful and damaging beliefs and attitudes towards LGBTQI people. Um, and so in the last episode in particular, I talked about my own changing stance growing up in conservative Christianity and why I thought 
we really need to be working to overturn the exclusionary stance of many Christian faith communities in this regard. I recognise as I, as I kind of listen back to myself, which I do from time to time, <laughs> um, that a lot of the ground that I covered was really about why Christianity should not exclude. And I think that's a really, really important part of the conversation. But what I wanted to do in this episode is talk a little bit more broadly uh, about the shape of inclusion and embracing Christianity and, and how this connected to Christian understandings and the spirit and, in fact, is integral to the trajectory of Christian faith itself, in my opinion. So um, so to do that, I want to talk about a couple of stories in the New Testament and uh, the New Testament texts, which are these very early Christian texts in the wake of, of the Jesus story. Uh, so I want to talk, pick up on a couple of passages here uh, by these early Christian writers that relate to the formation of the early church and the language and their experience of the kind of mystical experience of the divine, of the spirit in early Christianity and why that sets uh, a more inclusive trajectory in motion. And then perhaps we'll talk a little bit about how that gets kind of stunted along the way. So this is episode 25 of In the Shift. Let's get into it. <laughs> So as I've talked about a few times uh, along the way, uh, although if you're just tuning in for this episode, maybe it's news to you. I grew up in a in a very well, it's been much of my early life, uh, not just as a kid but as a young adult in Pentecostal kind of environments uh, of a particular kind of intensity, and uh, and one thing that was kind of central in that kind of spirituality was this idea of uh, experiencing the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and uh, some you know a lot of the spirituality whether it was uh, worship, whether it was your own personal kind of um, spiritual formation, whether it was your engagement in church practices, whether it was your engagement in prayer. So much of this was oriented towards having some kind of encounter or experience of the Spirit. Uh, one thing I recognize now is that in many respects, uh, that's quite, it was quite an individualistic paradigm. So it was all about uh, me as, a, as an individual, even if I was having that experience among others, it was very individualistic. It was very personal, um, which I guess in some sense is why perhaps it holds such potent meaning for people because it's very deeply personal to them. But it's also this very individualistic kind of um, experience. Uh, and it's experience of something or someone, if you like, of the Holy Spirit, of, some, of something coming from out there somewhere, you know. So the, the vision of sort of a lot of even the spirituality, the songs, the prayers were about trying to in some way call down or or call in the spirit from somewhere else. Uh, and that this was something kind of um, disembodied, this was something non-material, this was something from out there somewhere that would somehow come and give me this particular kind of experience. But what I now recognise in relation to that, I guess, is that from even from a Christian perspective, there are some big elements missing in this kind of spirituality and even this kind of understanding of the spirit. So the spirit... In, in my framework had been individualized and personalized and experientialized, but in some way taken out of context and then disembodied from real lived and grounded realities. Um, and so then missing the fact that the experiences themselves, the mystical, mysterious ways in which people do seem to encounter something divine present to us, 
how these experiences can take on much more meaning for us when they're actually placed within a wider story and when we understand how they are brought to bear on our embodied reality, both as individuals but also as communities, rather than just as this individual personal disembodied experience. So I want to look at the role of the spirit in the Christian scriptures um, in, a, in a very broad sense and the way that the activity and presence of the spirit if we pay attention, is constantly acting to disrupt oppressive systems and exclusive in-out groups and move people towards justice and compassion. So I want to trace that story a little bit and, and then zero in on a couple of passages or stories in particular. So in the Old Testament, which are, are the, the the Hebrew scriptures, if you like, the, the Torah plus the, the prophets and the Psalms and, and some other books as well, these, these texts that tell the story of ancient Israel and their journey uh, with Yahweh. And in these texts, uh, you have this language of the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, um, the Spirit of Yahweh. The Spirit is talked about, um, the, the word there is ruach, uh, and sometimes it's translated as breath or, or wind, and sometimes as spirit, depending on the context. And this helped to shape some of the understanding of the Spirit uh, as the breath or the life source within all living things. Um, so you have the spirit that was seen as being that which gave life to all of creation, if you like, especially all things with breath in them. So this is a very sort of wide and broad and deep sense of where God's spirit might be present and active. And then you'd also have uh, moments in, in these stories when that spirit would seem to um, be at work in people in particularly notable kinds of ways for various acts, whether it was creativity and artists or whether it was prophets and priests, uh, all acting in the power of the Spirit of the Lord. So there's this kind of dual notion of the Spirit here. One is this quite general, broad sense of source of life in all things. And then other language that seems to indicate there's this specific kind of work of the Spirit in, in the lives of particular people for a particular purpose. Then when we get to the prophet Isaiah, which is a really notable um, prophet in the Old Testament and one which the New Testament, in fact, draws on a lot, um, we see that there's a development even in this tradition of understanding about the Spirit. And Isaiah has this particular kind of, or recounts this particular story or experience that he has, um, what we often call a theophany, which is some, you know, an appearing of God or an encounter with this, with this appearance in some kind of way. Uh, and one of the things that jumps out to Isaiah is the sense of holiness, the sense of otherness to God, the sense that God is in some way um, purely what God is. Um, that's, I guess, some of what the language of holiness is trying to get at. Uh, and so Isaiah's language about the spirit shifts to the Holy Spirit because of his particular experience. And this language catches on and becomes the way in which um, Jewish people people and then uh, Christians would begin to speak of the Spirit. And so the language of the Holy Spirit has really hung on since then. And in Isaiah's, in the passages in Isaiah, we find some language around the Spirit, uh, in particular in relation to this vision of a coming uh, deliverer of some kind. He, Isaiah looked forward uh, as the people were in this real complicated mess that they'd found themselves in, which is through their own um, oppression, through their own um, treatment of the poor through their own callous disregard for um, faithfulness to a different way of being in the world. This is the way Isaiah tells the story. 
uh, they got themselves into a real mess, and then that mess culminates in their um, conquest by Babylon, and and so in the midst of all of this, in the in the prophetic passages of Isaiah, there's this looking forward to a time when deliverance would come in some kind of way. And so in Isaiah 42, for example, uh, the prophet speaks of a servant uh, in whom I delight and I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. So you have this poetic kind of looking forward to some kind of figure or, or and, at, and at times uh, the Jewish people believed this spoke of them as a nation and then we see in the Jesus story in particular this application of this kind of text to the figure of Jesus. And there's this relationship here between the spirit and then also this movement of justice. But the movement of justice here, even in this passage, is not a kind of punitive or violent justice, which is kind of a a raging around the world, conquering and, and smiting all of the enemies, but it's the kind of justice, justice uh, that will not uh, break a bruised reed. And so there's this gentleness to the justice that's being spoken of here. And uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, who's uh, you know one of the leading Old Testament scholars uh, alive, speaks uh, about the prophetic idea of justice in the Old Testament. So when the prophets speak of justice, he says they are speaking of the reordering of social life and social power so that the weak may live a life of dignity, security, and well-being. So the kind of justice being talked about here is not an enraging kind of, um, I'm going to kill everyone who's in my way kind of justice. Um, it's not the Justice League. Right, it's it's this reordering of social life and social power so that the weak may find dignity and well-being and security. Now, of course, that challenges those who are in power uh, and calls out oppression and injustice when it's seen, uh, as we see in the prophets and as we also see in the life of Jesus. Um, but it's ultimately not about taking up violence uh, in that sense. And um, and this this kind of idea shapes much of the tradition around the Holy Spirit in ancient Israel up until the time of Christ. And so this idea of one who would come, who would come uh, somehow um, emboldened or empowered by this spirit to do this work. Um, and uh, when we get to the New Testament texts and the New Testament stories about Jesus, we see Jesus interprets himself very much in this tradition, right? So he draws on these Older Testament narratives um, to give shape to the way in which he understood his own vocation and calling. So in uh, Luke's account of the Jesus story, he, he says that the first sort of real sermon of Jesus is when Jesus goes in and pulls out a scroll from, or is given the scroll from the prophet Isaiah uh, and reads this passage from a little bit further on, from Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, and Jesus reads this out in the synagogue, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he picks up on this language in Isaiah, uh, and he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, right? So there's this idea that Jesus identifies as this one whom the Spirit is upon in order to bring about this kind of justice in the world. And just to emphasize the fact, 
that there's a certain kind of justice being talked about here. Jesus leaves off a line in the Isaiah text there. So in the original Isaiah text, after the the line to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, Isaiah said, and the year of vengeance of our God. Um, But Jesus just clips that off the end there as a way of emphasising, no, no, this is not about vengeance, in fact. This is about the kind of justice uh, that is going to be brought about a different kind of way. And um, and again, so here justice is not about punitive, punishing justice for the sake of it. It's not about revenge. Um, it's not about getting back at your enemies. It's about a justice that calls us to reorder our social realities. Okay, so that's that's kind of one thing that's going on in this text here and that Jesus is claiming this continuity as this kind of new prophet that he's, he's identifying himself as. And... Um, so that's one thing that's going on in his particular use of that text. Now, I mean, again, when I was uh, perhaps an enthusiastic Pentecostal, I, I read the texts around, you know, um, sight for the blind and set the oppressed free, and I always, the sermons I always heard on that were about miracles. You know, this meant this was all about miracles. Um, but even as we've already noted in the series, actually, the miracles of Jesus themselves are about social reordering. They're not just about flashy... Miracles, the stories symbolize the social reordering as people who are on the margins are healed or, or set free in some kind of way that enables them to integrate back into a sense of belonging and community to move from the margins back into a space where they are connected and belong. And so if we miss that in that story, then we miss a big part of actually what's going on in the telling of the Jesus story. Now, as we move through the Jesus story and then into the book of Acts, which is Luke's, you know, second part of Luke's work, um, the way Luke tells the story is that the same spirit who then was upon or at work in Jesus for this kind of uh, social reordering, for this kind of justice work, for this kind of ministry, um, is now with the followers of Jesus who are to follow in his footsteps. And so you see then the followers of Jesus continue this work of Christ. And so all of the experiences of the Spirit that the early followers of Jesus have in the book of Acts and so on uh, take place within this wider context and within this wider story. So I want to talk briefly about a couple of passages here, about the formation of the church, which takes place in this in this book of Acts. And um, and the Spirit in particular is a big feature of Luke's work here. And Luke, Luke as I said, writes, Luke and Acts is two halves of the same story. So uh, in the very beginning of the formation of the church, essentially what happens is there's this experience of the spirit, this this mystical kind of curious, mysterious experience that these followers of Jesus have when they are gathered together. And and then this kind of experience uh, continues in different ways, shapes and forms throughout the story. Now, one of the things is a scholar, Aaron Kueka, who's done some work on this, who notes that sections of the text throughout Acts where group and social identity are at stake contain the highest density of spirit references. In other words, um, where the spirit is mentioned most often in this story is all around group and social identity. It's about who belongs and how they belong. So whenever we get to a sense of belonging, exclusion, inclusion, participation, um, then the spirit is suddenly being talked about much more often than in other times. And the first instance we get of this is right at the very beginning of the book, really, in Acts chapter 2. And this is the formation of the church kind of story. 
And in this passage, the followers of Jesus are gathered. They've, they've, he's, the whole Jesus event has unfolded. They are now um, gathered and uh, praying and having this kind of uh, time of waiting to see what would happen and what would unfold. And uh, Jesus had given them this kind of promise that they must go and gather and wait and that they would receive the Spirit in some kind of way. And um, they, of course, didn't know what that meant. But they gather and there's this... It's interesting looking at the way in which the author records this. There's all this kind of use of imagery and metaphor. It's something like the sound of a rushing wind and what appeared to be like tongues of fire rested on their heads. So all of this... In, in some respects, quite Old Testament language of of the way in which God appears, and then something curious happens, which is they begin to speak. The story says in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, this is at the time of Pentecost, and so people are, are gathered. And Pentecost is the feast in the Jewish tradition, which remembers um, their journey out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, and in particular, Pentecost is about them receiving the law at Mount Sinai. So when Moses goes up the mountain and comes back with the law, and they are formed as a nation. So that's where the the ex- escaped slaves essentially become a people. They become a nation. And uh, so Pentecost is a feast remembering that story. And so you have uh, people, Jewish people from who have been scattered all throughout the world for many hundreds of years after the exile, who are all gathered in Jerusalem at this time. Uh, and so they all speak different languages because then they've been living in, you know, in other lands for generations and generations. But they've come into Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And uh, the disciples must, I guess the implication is in some way they spill out onto the street or they, they come out and, they, and they're making a bit of a ruckus. And, and what the text says is that there's this curious thing that goes on where those who are present, all of these people who speak these different languages, are amazed to hear these disciples speaking in their own native language. So it's a curious story, isn't it? Um, and I guess we could get caught up on the on the exact technicalities or the literalness of it, and I don't want to either strip all the mystery out of it and say, oh, obviously uh, it's just a metaphor, nor do I want to miss the symbolic meaning that's in it. So rather than trying to approach it in that sense, I want to see what it is that the author is trying to communicate here and what, what is symbolized within this story. And there's a couple of things to note here. One is there's some real parallels between, you know, even Philo, who's kind of a contemporary of the time, who's a, who's a Jewish um, thinker and teacher and writer, and Philo talks about the Sinai event, the giving of the law to Israel when they become a people. And the way he tells that story is this imagery of fire out of heaven that it emerges and, and becomes a voice that people can understand. And so... In some sense, what Luke's doing here is drawing on that language of Philo as well to say there's something similar kind of going on here. And just as the Sinai event was important for the formation of Israel as a people, so now this Pentecost event is important for the formation of this new people who would become uh, the church in, in the Christian sense. Now, there's some differences, of course, Um one of the differences is and after Sinai, uh, once the people eventually do become a nation, they then go into a land and wipe out their enemies. And um, and that's kind of a dark turn in the story. Um, but there's something very different that takes place in the Pentecost story, which is instead of going in and wiping out the other, they begin to speak in different languages that, that opens the story up to the other. 
So there's a lot that's happening here in relation to group identity, to belonging, but also to openness. Um, now, another couple of things to note. Um, the miracle isn't necessary, right? <laughs> it's what some scholars refer to as an unnecessary miracle, which is to say that um, because these were people, even though they've been living in uh, other nations for hundreds of years and spoke other languages because of the nations that they'd been in for many generations, they were also Jewish, faithful Jewish people who were here for the Feast of Pentecost and could speak a common language of Aramaic if they desired. And we know this even from the fact that Peter then gets up and speaks to the crowd in one language, right? So, so the miracle isn't necessary for communication, uh, which is the way I guess it's sometimes read, which means that the way the story is being told, the meaning of the miracle is much more than just, oh, look, it's amazing, and now they can all understand because they could have all understood anyway, which means that the meaning of this story is profoundly symbolic, right? And the symbol that functions as an affirmation of linguistic and cultural and ethnic diversity. In other words, here are these people in all of the, who, who speak all of these different languages as well as a common language. And as the spirit is at work, as these people have this mystical experience of the divine, uh, what happens is these, this diverse set of cultural and linguistic realities is included in the story, is affirmed. And so because language and culture are profoundly and inseparably connected, right? So if you've ever learned another language, you'll know that you can't really learn a language without learning the culture because culture and language are deeply embedded with one another. Similarly, if you start to lose language, uh, you lose a sense of cultural understanding as well. So culture and language are inseparable, and, and so the implications here are just as these multiple languages are heard and understood. So multiple cultural realities are being heard and understood, and so there's this profound um, diversity that's embraced into the story. And there are even proselytes in the crowd, the author records who are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. So that extends the, the message further, this uh, amplifying of the reality of diversity. Uh, and so um, some scholars, someone like Amos Young, for example, says actually there are even religious implications to this because language and culture are implicitly caught up in diverse religious realities as well. And so there's something big and broad and open that's being unfolded here in this story and that's being symbolized for us in this speaking of other languages. And so rather than the establishment of a community of belonging, which is identified primarily in contrast and antagonism and violence, this particular community is being formed right at its inception in a way that's symbolized by openness and inclusiveness of different languages and cultures and worldviews and ethnicities. Now, as we go along through the story, and I think that's really important to understand. And that's much more than just trying to um, speak in tongues on a Pentecostal altar call, right? There's, there's much more going on here in the story. And, and then as we go along, we, we hit a passage uh, much later in the, in the book in Acts chapter 10, uh, which is sometimes called the Gentile Pentecost. So this is when, even though proselytes were involved in that early story, now we have uh, Gentiles who are, who have not converted to Judaism starting to be included in the story. This is another big movement. So uh, if you don't know the story, there's a there's a, a follower of Jesus called Peter and he's hanging out, uh, having a prayer time. And then he has this weird experience, this kind of he falls into a trance. He has this vision that happens to him three times where uh, he believes God speaks to him about um, not calling unclean that which God has called clean. So God... Uh, in this vision, 
shows him these animals that, as a good Jewish man, Peter's not supposed to eat, and yet God says, I want you to eat. Uh, and so even though that's going against the Jewish law, God's saying, because I'm asking you to do it, it's actually okay. I am naming these things as clean, even though your law, which you believe is divinely given, names them as unclean. So Peter has this vision, doesn't really know what it means, and then suddenly has a knock at the door and gets invited to the house of some Gentiles, which as a first century Jewish man is not somewhere he should go. Uh, but because of his vision, he's opened up to the possibility and he goes. And you have this household of Gentiles, not Jewish at all, not circumcised, not following the Torah. And Peter turns up and they all have this same kind of mystical experience of the divine. In fact, before Paul's even finished speaking, probably because Paul wouldn't have given them the opportunity to have that. And so the the implication or the, the emphasis the author is wanting to communicate here is this is a divine initiative of some kind. This is a divine movement of inclusion. And and what happens here is this is this is more than just sort of, oh, oh right, oh, even though you're Gentiles, you can be included. Um they're not required to abandon their Gentile identity. They're not required to uh, abandon who they are. And so in this sense, it's more than, oh, even though you're Gentile, you can be a part of us. In fact, it's you are affirmed as you are and you're as much a part of us as we are. And the church goes on to debate this and explore this and decide what are we going to do with this? Are we going to um, decide that these people need to become Jewish or not? And in the end... They decide that it's the divine initiative, it's the movement of God in, in these communities that should be their leading and their guiding. They need to listen to the experiences of these people. And so the hard dividing lines between um, race uh, are broken down uh, and, and we see what unfolds through the New Testament story and some of the hard dividing lines between gender and between class are also broken down through this divine experience of the spirit that people are having. And so um, what sets this in, in motion, this kind of breaking down of these dividing lines, is this faith that's grounded in an openness towards and this affirmation of difference and diversity and distinction rather than conversion to sameness. So it's a fundamental stance that opens you up to the world rather than closing you down and narrowing in the walls. And so... Um, as I say, the church listens to this, to these set of experiences at this time, this church that's predominantly Jewish. And they decide to uphold this inclusionary moment, right? They say, no, actually, there's something going on here. There's, there's a trajectory of divine inclusion that we need to pay attention to. And the way they make this decision is not by debating back and forth, trading verse for verse, and oh yeah, but have you read Leviticus such and such, and have you read da da da? da? They have this. They have this conversation where they listen to the experiences of people, and they engage that conversation in community, and then they say, you know what? There's something happening here where we are being pushed to open ourselves up beyond that which we were previously comfortable with, and we have to do that to be faithful to the way in which this story is playing out. And so what this tells us, I think, is that whatever we mean when we talk about the divine spirit, the Holy Spirit, you know, and I don't know what your relationship with that term is and whether you're familiar with it or not or whether you have triggering responses to it or traumatic responses to it or not. But at its best, I think this kind of language is here we're talking about the movement of divine life which serves to transcend our exclusionary practices, to move us toward inclusion and especially of those who are marginalised and kept out and pushed to the edge. 
and what we see in this in these early stories is that the intention I think of of this of the trajectory of this early story is that it's not a static landing place that says, oh, right, and so we get to the end of the New Testament and then whoever's in there, now they're in and everybody else is still out. But there's this movement forward in the story, constantly opening up to those who are being marginalised by various ideas and attitudes and social beliefs and practices. Um, now, what happens to that? Of course, we, we've talked about on an earlier episode, uh, I think it was in relation to talking about hell uh, and the beliefs around hell, we recognise that over time, and especially several centuries later, the church itself becomes moves from being this kind of marginal, countercultural, inclusive movement to becoming uh, compromised by wealth and power and status. It becomes associated with the empire and ultimately with violence, and it becomes a movement that expels those who don't fit and who don't agree and who don't look right and who don't sound right. Um, you know, by the, by the early 6th century, it's illegal in the Roman Empire to, to not be a Christian. So there's this massive change that unfolds where the church essentially undoes this inclusionary kind of movement that we see early on and becomes this powerful empire of wealth and violence that seeks to force people in uh, or if you don't look right or sound right or think right or believe right, to force you out. And so these very, very hard lines are drawn here and they're drawn on the basis of exclusion and of violence. So it's not to say the church in the early stages is some kind of perfect community, but at least we can see the trajectory there toward openness and change. But that trajectory is then overwhelmed by this alignment with power and empire. And we still feel the impact of that of that alignment with power and empire now, even if we're not in the age of the Catholic uh, Roman Catholic Empire of the Middle Ages, we're still uh, left with the threads of a Christianity that functions to lock down and exclude and push out people to the edge. Uh, we can see this in the collaboration of Western Christianity with colonisation, for example. So in my country of New Zealand, the way in which the Christian church had, uh, or, or, or the Christian church aligned with colonising forces to essentially, they're not everybody, but essentially marginalise indigenous Māori in New Zealand. Um, conversion is seen as sameness, which means you, as, as, you know, as the missionary movement kind of came in, uh, Māori were discouraged from speaking their own language. They were, their culture was demonised by various threads in the Christian church. And so you can see that kind of movement of conversion as sameness. We are here as the civilising Christian empire come to redeem the savages, you know, um, you need to become like us, dress like us, speak like us in order to become one of us, in order to belong to the story. Uh, and, and you can see the deeply harmful impact that that's had um, within a place like New Zealand. And I know the same story has played out in multiple places around the world. Uh, and then as we've been exploring over the last couple of weeks, the same kind of sentiment towards LGBTQI people in this like, they look different, sound different, feel different, and we uh, want to cling, or Christian, some Christians, many Christians, <laughs> want to cling to an old uh, paradigm that keeps those people out rather than recognising that, and what if we paid attention to the experiences and the stories of those who are in this community, and what if we were able to tap back into this opening up to this inclusive trajectory? What if we were able to tap into the sense that the Spirit is at work to open us up to one another and to see, seek out those who find themselves pushed to the edge and to the margin, and to instead affirm them, bring them in 
to a sense of belonging um, or at least to acknowledge their sense of belonging even where they are to instead of trying to define for others who they are and where they fit, actually uh, seeing the spirit, if you like, at work already among those who might be different, might be diverse, might have traditionally been considered out. So the suggestion I want to make here is that we need, if we're going to be faithful to this story, we need to peel back those layers of exclusionary power games, of the desire that many Christians seem to have, and other religious folk too, it's fair to say, which is to expel those who are different. Uh, And instead, the invitation here is to see the diversity as the very place where the divine might be present and active and speaking to us. This is the trajectory of the work of the Spirit. And so it's something to participate in rather than to reject, to listen and pay attention to those who are speaking to us from their experience, to cultivate a posture of faith and spirituality that opens us up to the world rather than closing us down and narrowing us in. This is, I think, the spirit of inclusion. Okay. I think that's us for today. Thanks, as always, to Therese Michel for his help in massaging the audio quality of this recording and bringing my voice to your ears. Um, as always, you can get in touch. Uh, you can go onto intheshift.com and get in touch directly through there. You can go, of course, to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, your place of choosing. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, see how you're getting on, what you're thinking. Um, see you next time.